Hi, welcome to Peacock Politics. Before we get going, a disclaimer of sorts. I recorded this episode in the weeks just before the COVID-19 outbreak turned into this life-altering pandemic, so that's why we haven't referenced it. Now that's done, sit back and join me in learning a little bit more about how Australian politics works in a normal world. Hopefully we get back there soon, and please do all you can to stay healthy. A Podcast One production. Climate change. Those two words. Whoa. It's a uh, rather hot topic, if you would pardon the horrific pun, and it inevitably kicks off a debate. End of days is near. We should be doing more. It's not that bad. Oh, it's all a load of crap. Somewhere amongst that lot. I'm Adam Peacock, and on this Peacock Politics, it's time to talk climate change. But wait, just to be clear, I'm not going to sit here and preach a point of view or delve into evidence or whatever. That's not what this podcast is about. This is purely about how the government creates policies around and for issues that are divisive and complex in politics and why any kind of clear narrative on how the issue is being tackled is often misleading in Australian politics when it comes to climate change. And what better way to illustrate this than the issue of climate change? My guest is Tony Wood, an absolute expert when it comes to climate change and how governments look at the issue. Tony has a master's degree in science. He worked in the energy sector for over a decade. Now, since 2011, he's been at the Grattan Institute, which is basically a think tank. They come up with ideas for public policy that governments may or may not use. So, Tony, thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. How have you been involved with how governments deal with climate change issues and what's your experience been? Well, I guess the, my involvement has been uh, since governments recognised that they needed to do something about climate change and industry started to think that they had to be part of that story. Climate change is one of those tricky issues where industry, just generally speaking, isn't just going to go on and get on and do it. It needs policy direction because climate change is one of those things that financial markets do not deal with easily. They don't know how to price the environmental impact of climate change into market structures. And so you need government policy. And and I got involved in this when I was working in the energy sector. And climate change is one of those areas where, well, we don't do, we're not responsible for very much emissions in Australia. Therefore, what we do doesn't matter all that much. And that's not very helpful because many other countries in the world have the same challenge. And so it's a really difficult economic, political, policy, technology, financial problem. And, um, you know, I've been working in this area for many years, as you said, uh, Adam, and I, I still remain optimistic that we'll find a way through, but it's a challenge. Give us the background then. How long has the topic of climate change been worrying about Australian politics? Well, you can find the, the, the beginnings of this in the 1990s. Even globally, people like Margaret Thatcher were saying, this is a risk we have to think about. In Australia, uh, we were part of the original Kyoto Protocol. The Australian government signed up to... We didn't ratify the protocol. We signed up to it. It wasn't finally ratified until Kevin Rudd became Prime Minister. It was a challenge for John Howard towards the end of what became... Or what became the end of his Prime Ministership towards the end of that in the 2007 election. He went to that election having been convinced that the community, the Australian community, had not been happy with what the government was doing or not doing on climate change. He went to the election with a policy. He was defeated. Unfortunately, Kevin Rudd, who did have also have a policy, he got the Kyoto Protocol ratified, but never got to implement an effective carbon policy because the time that started to happen, he 
I guess, basically stuffed it up to a degree. But in addition to that, he was given a lot of help because of the internal politics of the Liberal Party at the time between Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott, or it became Tony Abbott as leader. And then that just played out again and again between Rudd and Gillard. In Australia, it's been a particularly hard area because of the, the politics associated with this. And as a result, we find ourselves in a situation where, for example, Australia's probably tried more different policies to address climate change than just about every other country in the world, and we just haven't been able to get any of them to stick politically. And, and now we stand in a situation where supposedly our government is committed to and recognises climate change and is committed to action on climate change, but is incapable of adopting a policy that would get us there efficiently, despite the rhetoric we see out of the government. And so, you know, you've got frustrated Liberal Party members who are unhappy. You've got frustrated National Party members who are unhappy. It still remains, even though people like Malcolm Turnbull and Tony Abbott have gone, that doesn't mean that the climate wars have gone by any means. Yeah, you sit there of the frustration of people inside the political system in Australia, but and I sit there outside it all, and I'm not sure if I'm alone here, I've got no idea what our climate policy is, (laughs) has been, will be. I just hear noise and accusation, but see little action. Am am I off the mark here? Am I not paying attention to the right things? Or am I pretty much along the lines of what's going on? No, I think you are correct. And I think what you're saying is broadly reflected in the Australian community, the electorate. I mean, yeah, there are people at the extremes, but it is a complicated area. It's open to claims and counterclaims. And so are those of us who even think we understand some of the science just scratch our heads when we hear the way it's sometimes represented or even misrepresented. Um, you know, I don't think we've yet seen a political leader in Australia who's been able to articulate for the Australian community, the voters, the businesses, the households, the people who have to pay their electricity bills every month, for those people, A, why this is important, and B, to give them a view, this is what we're going to do about it. We are going to take action on climate change. And those people who are understandably have made a connection between the most recent, and we're not finished yet, summer of bushfires, wildfires and climate change, they're looking for something, but they're not getting a clear articulation, a clear story or a narrative that will explain what we're going to do and how we're going to do it and how our lives are not going to be screwed up by this and how we don't want to catastrophize the problem of climate change, but equally we have to respond to it. And that until we find a politician who can do that, we're going to struggle. So I don't think yet uh, Scott Morrison has been able to do that. Demonstrably, uh, Bill Shorten was unable to do that. He got very mixed up in the last federal election and, and lost that, what arguably looked like being an unlosable election. This is a very difficult one for politicians. And unfortunately, it's an area that does need political leadership because we can get so far with people putting solar panels on their roofs or we can get so far with building large solar farms and wind farms but that doesn't get us where we need to be. And so, you know, I think we're going to struggle until we find some form of common ground. And politically, that common ground has been, um, seems as far away as it ever was, to be honest. So is, is the reason for why it's so politically confusing and therefore confusing for someone looking outside into the political bubble that they can't work out what a change in policy will do to, for instance, the economy? They're worried that the arse to use, for want of a better expression, the arse is going to fall out of the economy if we make a drastic change. I'm not sure I've heard the Reserve Bank talk about the arse of the economy. but (laughs) Falling out of the economy, you know what I mean? (laughs) Well, look, I think that's true. And I I think that because no one's seriously been able to create the, the compelling story, 
as to why the economy will continue to be reasonably robust. And yes, I mean, depending on what projections of future energy prices you think or the cost of technology in the future are going to be, you might see a few small you know, changes in, in, in percentage of GDP. But the idea that, you know, for example, some numbers have said, well, look, it means that the level of GDP, gross domestic product, which is the body of the economy, will be in 2040, we may achieve that level of GDP per head of population six months later. Now, we're talking about the end of 2040 and the halfway through 2041. I mean, this is not going to make much difference to people's lives. And yet it's become this extraordinarily extended, uh, aggressive, partisan politics. And Australia is one of the countries where it's played out most badly for reasons that are more political than they are based upon fundamental, even ideology. I mean, this is this is a space where you'd think those who are conservative or worried about conserving our economy and conserving um, our, our environment, our physical environment, would seriously have taken taken this on board. But, you know, it's it's been very difficult. And the other side of this is industry, certainly up until fairly recently, has not helped. So it goes back to that classic line that says, look, believing something or not believing something is going to impact somebody's fundamental economic well-being, or they believe it's going to, then you may as well not bother because they're not going to change. And so um, I think we've not yet seen uh, that compellingly played through. Some years ago, 10, 12 years ago, industry was arguing against serious action on climate change. Now, big industry in particular has taken the completely opposite view. It is pushing the government, is pushing state and federal politicians to seriously help move on climate change because they can see the consequences if we don't. And that doesn't matter whether you're talking about the finance industry, the banking industry, the insurance industry, the energy industry, the resources industry, and so on. They are all broadly in the same space. And yet, our political leaders have not been able to find a way to occupy that space in a way that's credible. I find that amazing that politicians aren't taking that on board heavily, i.e. we live in a capitalist society, if you like, so it's it's based on big business and that has a lot to do with how our economy runs, but that you're saying is almost being ignored and I'm, I'm not pointing the finger at any one political party, but it sounds like it's a constant throughout Canberra, if you want to put it, with the federal government that the industry hasn't been listened to on this. It is a strange situation because historically, and, and in, as a matter of almost fundamental ideology, you'd expect a Liberal coalition government to be a government that is more consistent with the interests of, of industry more broadly. But I think what's happened here is that at the same time as the industry, and, and there will be pockets of industry who wouldn't, and they wouldn't line up completely in, unanimously around any particular number on climate change, emissions reduction and so forth, but broadly they're pushing for the same issue. The Business Council of Australia is now seriously trying again to demonstrate their credentials that they're serious on climate change. But at the time this debate has taken place and this movement in the position of industry has been occurring, at that same time, the political infighting, the political mess that's inside um, the federal government remains the case. And it's it's almost more of an issue inside the coalition government than it is between the coalition government and Labor, in a sense. I mean, you've got you know the Greens at one extreme, maybe, and you've got 
uh, One Nation and Clive Palmer's party at the other extreme, and even the Nationals now are in a bit of a mess because you've got pe- people like the Young Nationals and the Farmers Federation who are seriously concerned about the impact of climate change and want to see something done about it, and yet you still see people in the National Party taking a view that, no, no, this is, this is bad for jobs, bad for the economy, we need to build new coal-fired power stations, and that you know it's not an issue in our electorate, and yet that's not what we're hearing. So it's inter- it is a, a very strange, and you would have to think, Adam, unsustainable that our Commonwealth government can continue to take this position. My optimism is that they can't and won't, but how they find their way out of this is one of the challenges of 2020-2021, because remember, Scott Morrison is now you know almost a year into his term as Prime Minister. When looking at an issue like this, what are the sources the government uses to decipher the truth? Now, I mentioned at the start that you work at the Grattan Institute, so you come up with ideas for public policy. So is that a source that they use? Is it Treasury? Is it other parts of Australian society in terms of business or public service that they take on board and try and work out what to do with that information and come up with a policy that's clear to all? Mostly what you described is right. I remember in, in politics, two things have to be aligned for good policy to prevail. And that is you've got to see the situation where good policy and good politics happen at the same time. So no, no minister or prime minister is going to try and implement a policy if they think that they're going to lose the next election. And so the policy and the politics have to be aligned. Um, that means that they're getting input from all sorts of people. Sometimes there's a bit of a Canberra bubble, of course. Um, I think in terms of the information they get, it can be very diverse. It depends on what the issues are. There's a lot of evidence to suggest that people who are broadly on the conservative side or the I don't necessarily accept the science of climate change angle on this, they are people who often get their information from people they already know There is obviously an element of social media aspects about this, that we get the information from the sources that we're comfortable with and we listen to the people we are already comfortable with and we listen and we almost put more weight, or these people who think this way, put more weight on who's telling them something than on the credibility of what they're being told. And so not many people would know, many climate scientists, for example, on whom's advice they could depend. But uh, I think in this particular case, people are looking for information which almost proves the point to support the opinion they've already made up. They're not often prepared to think about, well, in the lines of a famous economist, when the facts change, I change my mind. In this world, when the facts change, I go and get another set of facts to support my opinion. (laughs) And that is turning out, and that's, I think, one of the reasons why we're stuck where we are, that this isn't really about science. I mean, I'm a, I know climate scientists says, look, we thought the way to change people's opinion on this was to give them more certainty about climate science. So when we went from, what well, it's 90% probable, it's 95% probable, it's 97% probable, it's 99 that wasn't the point. The point was that people in some situations, particularly political leaders, did not want to accept that outcome. And the way they think about it was not going to be influenced by more facts or more science. It is the most emotional debate around right now. I feel it is. I don't know if you agree. Does that help or hinder what is going on with the government striving to come up with a clear climate policy, which we can all then get on with our lives and and operate by? 
I think ultimately it will help. Time will tell. It would be very unfortunate if it requires something as dramatic and as catastrophic for many people as these summer bushfires have been to cause that to change. And if we have another, if next summer is just as bad and there's no good reason to think it won't be, it may not be quite the same, it'll be different. But, you know, I think we're, we're, in a, we're in for a very bad phase if you accept that's broadly speaking, the direction of climate sciences. Now, there are other, it's not just carbon dioxide levels that's contributing to a whole range of things. And so you hear the scientists and other people screaming at each other. So I think that where we are now, the reason I think it can be helpful is that if we were having an election in May this year rather than May last year, I think the conversation coming out of Canberra would be very different because there is so much palpable anger frustration and concern about the government's response to the bushfires and specifically and the climate change more generally. What I do think is we've got an opportunity here. I think Scott Morrison turns out to be what I would call a classic pragmatic liberal leader in the the ilk of John Howard and I I gather Robert Menzies may have been like this. He will recognise that the community position has changed and it's changed fairly fundamentally. I mean, that we've seen more people killed in bushfires before and we've seen more acreage destroyed, but we've never seen Canberra being the highest polluted city in the world. We've never seen people in Sydney being said to stay home because of the smoke. I mean, the impact of this has been so wide that it's hard to believe that that isn't playing through in Scott Morrison's mind. So as a pragmatic, classic Liberal Party Prime Minister, I would expect that what he's going to do is find a way out of this without doing a backflip on specific emissions reduction targets, without adopting Labor Party policy or anything like that, but beginning to find a way as a result of what's happened now out of this uh, very unpleasant situation. So it could be that this is one of those ones, one of those crises that doesn't get wasted and we actually do find a pragmatic Liberal Prime Minister gradually finding a way out from where we are today or will Morrison turn out to be a crash and burn prime minister like Kevin Rudd or, or Tony Abbott? I'd like to think the former. He's got just over two years to do that, and that's that's enough time to get the ship heading in the right direction without spooking those members of his coalition party room who are still uncomfortable with this. One of the issues here has been that there's quite a big difference between the state governments and federal governments on this issue. For example, all of the states and territories of Australia, whether they're Liberal-led or whether they're Labor-led, have now got net zero emissions by 2050 as a target. Now, that means every physical part of Australia is covered by one of those targets. Now, the federal government doesn't have one of those targets. In addition to that, the Commonwealth government has for some time been frustrated by the extent to which a couple of state governments, mainly New South Wales and Victoria, have been had moratoriums or restrictions on development of coal seam gas. Now, what Morrison did together with the New South Wales Premier is do a deal in which the federal government is going to help fund some emissions reduction projects in New South Wales. They're going to help fund some transmission upgrades between New South Wales and neighbouring states. They're going to help fund a renewable energy zone in the central west of New South Wales. So there's substantial money coming from the Commonwealth. And in exchange for that, the New South Wales government has agreed to help facilitate the development of the access of gas to the New South Wales consumers. Now, that's a big breakthrough in a sense because for both sides of politics, the Commonwealth might very well have broken the back of what from them has been a very frustrating issue of gas availability and the state will have got a substantial amount of money from the Commonwealth and that may be the beginnings of the sort of things that even though it's not ideal policy by any means, it might be the beginning of some practical things that head us in a better direction and, and maybe we'll see some other examples of that emerge in the next, uh, in the next six to 12 months.
Just on the term, and it's big in the political speak around climate change, is emissions targets. And you mentioned it up the top, Kyoto Protocol. There's the Paris Agreement. Now, for those like me who are not entirely across the mechanics of that, how it actually breaks down and gets put into real life, everyday life for someone walking the street like I am, not in politics, not in the energy sector, how does it affect my life? What exactly do those terms have to do with my everyday life? Well, all of us in the world, and in Australia is probably more so than most, what we do in our everyday lives is adding to the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, either directly or indirectly. The way we use electricity, the way we drive our vehicles, what sort of transport we use, the way we cook our food, all those sorts of things. The food we buy, the sort of whether we use, even if we eat meat versus other things, I mean, they all are adding to the emissions in the atmosphere. Now, the big difference between climate change and other environmental problems is it is truly a global problem. A lot of other pollution issues are more local. You can see the rubbish in the park. You can see and smell the pollution in their waterways. You can see what happens if sewage isn't treated properly. Mm. And you can see what happens when you clean it up. You can see directly the link between, what you, between what's causing it and what solves it. The problem with climate change is the CO2 concentrations are a global issue. It's one of these classic economic puzzles is how do you get – because if if we do something and the rest of the world doesn't, we're screwed. If other people in the world all did it and we didn't do anything, we probably could easily be saved, but that's not the way it's going to work. So the way this happened is that back in the early 1990s, the countries of the world got together and said, look, this is a global problem. It should lend itself to the same issues we did, we used to deal with um, the problem of the ozone layer and therefore we should find some ways to work together as a global community on this. And that was the Kyoto Protocol, was the idea of, of, of the global community recognising we had a problem. And every year they have a conference that talks about the, how we try and make some progress on that. Now, they, what happened between then and now is that even in 2009, when Kevin Rudd was Prime Minister, the attempts to make progress on this internationally didn't go, hasn't been going very well. So, for example, the developing countries said to the developed world, you caused this problem, you should do more to fix it than we have to because we're still trying to catch up with you economically. The developed world said, well, you guys can't possibly produce all these emissions you're going to produce, such as India and China. And so that just went on and on and on without any progress. The Paris Agreement came out of one of those international meetings, in, 20, in particularly in 2015, that said, look, why don't we try another way and get all the countries of the world to say, well, each of us individually can do so much. And we'll see if we can, that can add up to a solution rather than imposing a top-down process. Mm. And that looks like it was starting to have some traction. So Australia, um, out of that Paris Agreement, we made a commitment to reduce our emissions, certainly not as much as many people would like, and more than they were probably some of them were comfortable within the Australian government. That's the way this all worked. Now, once a country like Australia has said we're going to reduce our emissions by a certain amount, whatever that amount is, we've got to think about how we do that. And because it affects so many things we do in our lives, whether we're in, in business or the products and services we use and buy or whatever, what happens next is important because it affects uh, the cost of what we do and a whole lot of other things. So many people in Australia, for example, became uh, very enthusiastic about um, solar energy, um, to what extent we can use by putting solar panels on our roof, we can contribute to the solution. And Australia now has amongst the highest percentage of uptake of solar panels on household rooftops. So sometimes you can see people like you and me and others taking action in this regard when they're given the right incentive. So I think we, if a political leader can give us the right 
logical story and we can see what we can do about it and how we can contribute, there's an example where specific action by specific individuals can make a difference. It's at the broader level, I think, when life gets a bit harder. There's been a lot of debate around the bushfires we've had over last summer. So how the government reacted, we've heard from groups that said that they warned the government in advance of what was going to happen and why it was happening. People are saying these bushfires were worse than anyone could have imagined. People are saying that they had nothing to do with climate change. People are saying that bushfires have ravaged Australia for hundreds and hundreds of years and they'll continue to do so regardless of whatever climate policy there is out there. How does the government of the day determine what is most important about those voices in relation to, for example, the bushfires we've had? Look, I think the um, the government and the, the, the political leaders in the government have got to take all that information on board. And of course, you know, if you've got a particular ideological view of the world, then in all that stuff you mentioned, Adam, you can find a piece of information that proves your point. Hmm. that it was either good or bad or neither. <laughs> um, so you don't get very far by saying, I'm just going to listen to all the voices and then make up my mind. You've got to seriously think about, well, where are the serious scientific voices and where are the serious economic voices? Because this is not just a scientific problem, it's an economic problem as well. And both when you put science and economics together, you end up with politics. So <laughs> it seems to me that the Prime Minister and the government then just say, OK, look, on balance, this is where I think we have to go. And this is probably one of the most clear examples of where that's where that's what political leadership's all about. Again, I, I go back and I'm not necessarily saying I'm a particularly great fan of John Howard as Prime Minister, but what he was very good at was recognizing not necessarily where his own political ideology would have taken him, but where the mood of the Australian people was going and what was necessary. And I think when he went to the 2007 election, having been convinced that a national price on carbon was the appropriate way to go, I'm not sure whether he believed it himself but he certainly took it on board as what he thought Australians wanted. And I think that's where we are now. And I think that's where the challenge for Morrison, as it is for Albanese, is to find a way through there because they're both on different sides of the same problem. You've got the government today, the the Liberal Party in particular, with a a national party and and one nation and all that lot on one side, pulling them, pulling them, pulling them, to, to take less action on climate change and Labor's got the Greens on the other side pulling them to take more action on climate change. So my thesis would be, depending on what Morrison does next, whichever of those two political leaders can take all that information you're talking about, Adam, and synthesise that into a story that says, for example, Morrison says, look, we are going to take action on climate change. We've heard the way the Australian people are thinking about this but we're not going to destroy the economy for the following reasons. And here's the way we're going to do this in a way that's going to be satisfactory and the impact on most people's lives will be unnoticeable, etc. Albanese, on the other hand, will have to say, look, we are going to protect your jobs. We aren't going to destroy your jobs by, you know, overnight uh, ripping up the coal industry, for example, but we're not going to protect your jobs at the expense of the environment. And the way that narrative comes together, I think, will determine... A, which of them wins the next election, and B, which of them turns out to be the, 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 the better long-term leader. And I think that's where the, for me, is a bit of a political nerd these days, yeah. and that's where the political uh, interest really lies, at how each of those leaders uh, resolve what's a very, a very difficult question indeed. Is the issue of climate change all down to how a government reacts to what's out there, i.e. pressure from big business pressure from people protesting in the streets, which is essentially the electorate, people protesting by supergluing their hands to <laughs> to driveways or, or roads and things like that? Or 
Is it other factors that they might take attention to or is it all down to internal policy? The way I think about this, Adam, is there are th- there's three things that dictate how this plays out. Facts, pressures and constraints. So the facts. I mean, there are, despite what sometimes people um, would misrepresent, there are facts on the whole issue of climate change. The fact is the climate is changing. The fact is um, almost certainly uh, you know, human activity is contributing to that. The fact is the world has now committed to taking on action on climate change, even if Australia doesn't, the rest of the world will do so. And so there's a series of facts associated with this debate. There are things which are science-based conclusions which are probabilistic, but they're, again, these are not scientific opinions, they're scientific facts. So there's, there's a whole series of facts that the government has to consider, and whatever they do cannot ignore those facts, otherwise they look silly, and we've already seen a bit of that. The second bit is the pressures. So, and you've described some of those, you've got pressure from the community generally right now that may subside a little in the next couple of years, as it did after the 2007-8 period when um, you know we had a lot of pressure on climate change. It went away to some extent because of politi- we didn't act soon enough. And by the time we started to act, the pressure had gone away. But we've got right now very strong pressure, I think, from the community. A lot of Liberal members of Parliament are seeing that already, those who are particularly in the uh, inner suburb and and coastal fringe areas and so forth. We are seeing all that pressure from big business and small business saying, look, we need to solve this. We cannot, you know, we are particularly international businesses who are being faced with serious financial risks if they are not being seen to be taking action on climate change, their balance sheets will be at risk. And you've got companies like the insurance industry who is just seeing the cost of covering the impact of climate change growing astronomically. So there are pressures from inside, for example, the coalition party from those who would argue that the government should not be taking strong action on climate change. So there's those two issues. Then there's constraints. I mean, those of us who would like to think that the government will simply take on board the facts, step up and stand up to the pressures and just get on with it, are being naive. There are constraints. For example, maybe you could argue self-imposed constraints that Scott Morrison has as Prime Minister are just as palpable as the constraints that Malcolm Turnbull had when he tried to introduce an emissions reduction policy called the National Energy Guarantee, or NEG, in 2018. The political constraints within his party, which could easily threaten his prime ministership as it has killed other prime ministerships, are real. And so as his problem, his challenge is to solve for those three constraints. He's got to address the facts. He's got to address the pressures that are on him, but he can't do it um, unless he deals with the constraints. Otherwise, he will fail. So he's got to optimise or Mm. deal with all three of those. And that's where I think um, that's where success lies. But of course, it's also where failure lies. One last one. What does the world think of us in this (laughs) regard? And does it even affect how our government forms an opinion on climate policy? It is. There are three aspects of that I would I would mention. One is I was travelling overseas myself through a substantial part of January, and you know Australia burning was just such a strong feature of much of the the broad media coverage, broad political coverage, and did give rise to lots of criticism about how can Australia be not taking action on climate change and have that sort of situation. So and I think that still plays out, it's playing out politically. It played out when uh, even before the fires got to their worst when Angus Taylor, as the minister, went to the annual international uh, conference in, uh, in Madrid last year and clearly Australia's position was under very, very serious pressure. So there's that side of things. I think it's playing out very badly indeed for Australia. There are, I mean, clearly the, the, uh, you may know that your people listening to this podcast may know that the US President, Donald Trump, 
made a commitment to pull out of the Paris Agreement. Now, he hasn't committed to moving, pulling out of the international Kyoto Protocol, but the Paris Agreement. And if that occurs, it would occur, I think, the day after the 2020 presidential election. And you can make up your own mind as to whether you think Trump will be successful or not. But that's obviously a threat to the international position. Mm. Lots of states within the United States are progressing anyway, despite whatever the, the president does. But Australia can easily be seen as the deputy sheriff to the United States. Now, it's not a position I would think we should be taking, but you can see why Australia could be in a tricky mm. position in that regard. So there are some political pressures either way. And again, that comes back to my point that the Prime Minister has to deal with those international pressures because we've already seen, for example, the EU and specifically France say, countries with whom we now want to form free trade agreements, and they're saying, we're not going to form free trade agreements, to paraphrase what they've said, with countries that are not meeting their commitments under the Paris Agreement. So there's, some, again, a series of pressures and tensions which are not all pushing or pulling in the same direction. And so resolving that, again, adds to why climate change, uh, in the words of Ross Garner, was one of the most diabolically wicked, and he used those terms in a very economic sense, uh, political problems we've ever seen. Tony Wood, thank you so much for your time and insight into this complex, complex problem. I don't know if we'll be sitting here in another 10 years' time asking the same questions. Yes or no, what do you reckon? Um, I'd like to think not, Adam, but at the moment, uh, I've already said this once to a federal minister, uh, if you fix all this, I'm out of a job. So maybe I've got a vested interest in the wrong way. <laughs> Tony Wood, thank you for your time on Peacock Politics. Thank you. Peacock Politics was presented by me, Adam Peacock, and created in collaboration with Podcast One Australia. Producer, Tina Matalov. Sound production by Darcy Thompson. Theme music composed by Matthew Dwyer. Executive producer, Jennifer Goggin. To hear more episodes, go to podcastoneaustralia.com.au or search Peacock Politics on Apple Podcasts.